You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Was the universe spoken or sung into existence? Guys, today we will be discussing both the origins of Narnia and the origins of Arda, aka Middle Earth. Also, if you would like to hear some geeks mispronounce Tolkien's made up language, we've got a great show for you today. This is going to be fantastic. Oh, so <laughs> much mispronunciation. It's going to be bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, guys, this is Systematic Geekology. We are the Priest of the Geeks. I am one of your hosts, the Josh with the Bad Opinions. I'm here with the other Josh, making us the Josh I, the Josh with the Good Opinions. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And also the one, the only, um, the the ring leader of this circus at times, Joe Day. Well, it's good. Hey, look, I want everybody to know just so that way for all of you guys that had no idea what Josh was saying at the very beginning, the fact that it's called Arda <laughs> is already more than I knew about Middle Earth's <laughs> origins. So I'm excited to learn. Yep. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that either. So. I, I knew that it wasn't Earth called Middle-Earth. I knew Middle-Earth is a continent. Yeah, yeah. That's about yeah. as far as I go. <laughs> yeah, Middle-Earth is the land in Arda, which most of your Lord of the Rings stories happen on. Also, I don't even know how many people do that with Lord of the Rings now that I think about it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I have lots of geeky stuff. I am the one weirdo who loved the Silmarillion. Um, but because I'm a book weirdo, something you, you'll learn about book nerds, we don't know how to pronounce anything. We just read it and just accept that that's what those letters mean. <laughs> so, yeah, this will be this will be fun. We are just going to jump into this one. I'm I'm excited. I don't want to I want to take any time away from the source material. Also, if you didn't know, when you talk about anything with Tolkien and Lewis, they get pretty into detail. Yeah. So this could take a minute. <laughs> so let's let's start off. Why did we choose to discuss creation stories of Ein? New Lindale and the one's origin story that's in Magician's Nephew. If you can't tell, I have a hard time with some of Tolkien's words. Uh, a lot of them are like Norse-ish. I'm not Norse. Um, but yeah, mainly we just got out of the year, Lewis. So we want to talk about that. I also want to talk about Middle Earth, but I know that it's hard for me to find a dance partner for that. And they do share stuff, aka they both helped each other write the books, Lewis and Tolkien. And Singing is a huge part of both creation stories. So that's sort of why I thought it would be interesting to kind of hang out there. Yeah. And like we've talked about along the way with the with the year of Lewis, Tolkien's and Lewis's stories are so interwoven with one another because they were so significant in each other's lives that you can see the proof text of each world on each other and each author on each other's work and you look at these two ips you're talking about two of the most detailed authors to the point of i i know half of the the content for today because you know as you guys know <laughs> i am the resident narnia nerd but i would imagine that an author like tolkien would be right in that same vein as Lewis to the amount of detail and imagery baked into the creation stories for their respective worlds that it's kind of like starting off with a bang. You know, we hope mm -hmm. along the way to be able to illustrate these scenes and stories 
and pieces of lore about the start of these worlds that we love. So who better than to start with two of the absolute greats? Yeah, and I don't know, I get really intrigued by who inspired who on this because mm-hmm. the Narniad was written well before this was published because this um, the Origins of Arda was published well after Tolkien's death. So it was post published posthumous. Um, but we also know that Tolkien kind of had a notebook of all of the details of every single thing's history because before he wrote a story, he was like, I need to know exactly how everything unfolded to get us to this point. Right. So a lot of this, even though it wasn't published till after postmortem, he had written down in different notes and different notebooks and just wherever so that he knew how it started. But it still at the same time almost reads, and maybe it's because I read the Narnia at first, but almost reads as though Tolkien took some inspiration from Lewis's idea that Aslan sung the universe into existence and said, let me expound on that and attach some Catholic kind of flair to it. Because a lot of, if you read it, you could definitely tell one of these guys is very Protestant and one of these guys is not. So that's one thing I think is really funny because uh, in, in Lewis, from my understanding, it's just Aslan. He just creates stuff. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Tolkien pulls in the um, the the Anar and the Valar and all these other things to help with creation. And it kind of mimics, even though Tolkien says he doesn't do analogy and he didn't pull from his Christian faith or whatever. It was his own story. He doesn't it do still kind of reads as though. Yeah, it's still kind of like, mm, this reads very similar to how uh, Catholics view some of the archangel stuff, right? <laughs> like, hmm, kind of suspicious there. Yeah, you figure with both of them, regardless of what specific influences there are, how are you going to not have some, some evidence of what you know as a creation story on you creating a world, essentially? you know, yes, a make-believe world, but the idea here is that you are building the building blocks of a world where things are happening on more than just where the camera is. And both uh, authors do that very, very well, where they're able to make you feel like there are things and stuff going on in their world past what just what you're seeing at that moment in time. But uh, I, I think that that's, that there's... I think the proof is there that both men were influenced by their respective fates. Oh, yeah. And what's what's interesting with what you were talking about there of like, yes, different worlds kind of thing. That's very much the case with Lewis. Very much he was under the understanding that there's all these different universes. Aslan had his paw in all of them. I was going to say hand, but I just couldn't help the pun. Um, oh, dear. Whereas Tolkien, when questioned, says that Arda is our Earth. Eru Ilvatar is our god. It's just what it was known as before it became to our time. So he was writing fictional history prehistory in his own mind, which is really wild when you think about how out there the stuff he wrote is. Because <laughs> like, mm, dude, that's a that's not prehistory. <laughs> but you know, that's what he thought. <laughs> that's where he not he didn't believe it. Don't get me wrong, but that's why he wrote it this way. Um, I think it was also supposed to kind of be like a prelude to Beowulf, but I won't touch that here. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get on Patreon to talk about some of the behind the scenes origin stuff later on. I do want to to get to what we're actually talking about, because some people might not know. Joe, could you kind of briefly just describe Spark Notes version? What is the creation story of Narnia? Well, I don't know how brief I'm going to be able to be, but um, <laughs> there are 
Seven Ages of Narnia. And this is known as Narnia um, Year One. And through the series of events that take place in The Magician's Nephew, you have a small grouping of characters, including Jadis, also known as the White Witch, also known as the Empress of Charn, Diggory Kirk, Polly Plummer, Andrew Ketter- Ketterly, uh, Frank the Cabman, and Strawberry the Cab Horse are present in, <laughs> they, they arrive in this inky black nothingness and they see a lion and they happen to be present for the scene of Aslan the lion singing everything into existence. And it's this, that Lewis paints the picture of the lion standing there and the notes leaving the lion's mouth and, and turning into the world, turning into everything and all of that. And um, from, from there, he sings into existence, the stars and the sun and eventually plants and animals. And when he's finished, he make he takes the moment to give the the creatures because we're not we don't see the creation of man we see the creation of plant life and creatures and then the um ability to talk given to mm-hmm. the creatures and the idea is that as he creates these these creatures, not not unlike what we see in in the biblical account, he gives autonomy and authority to the creation. In this case, it is the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, so on and so forth. And it's it's from that point that that's the actual creation of the landscape and of the world presented in a way where Aslan is creating something that's already busy. Mm-hmm. There's already, as soon as things are created, there's, there's activity and there's action and all of mm-hmm. that. And you go from that point through the rest of the books and how, or through the rest of the story and onto how son of Adam, as they're called, becomes the first king and daughter of Eve becomes the first queen of Narnia. Yeah. A few things. Uh, Strawberry, one of the greatest characters, just, just in general. He's so yes. funny. I like, <laughs> he cracked me up, especially in this, uh, this telling of the story, just some of his reactions. And he's like, Hmm, wait a minute. Hmm, I think I do remember you from a different life. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Um, also, when he when he's singing the cre- the animals into existence, and the gra- right. it's, it's didn't he say it's like the grass boils and it like pops forth with life, basically. Yeah, yeah. The way he described it, I was like, I love the imagery. Uh, then I, I I wanted to ask you if what you thought about this. And what's funny is I said I didn't want to talk about evolution, but I'm I'm just curious. Do you think the reason that he went with animals before humans has to do with the fact that Lewis was a evolutionist, or do you think that was just coincidence? That very well could have had some kind of influence on it. I think more of what he was trying to go for was a more uh, anthropomorphized version of the way that we see the Bible lay out the hierarchy 
mm-hmm. of it all. So one of the big things that I've heard, if I've if I've heard anybody talk about Tolkien as as an author and as a creationist of his world versus Lewis and in, in, in him as an author and being a creationist of his world. Tolkien is more about order and system. Lewis is more about artist and imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And part of what this is de- detailing is, okay, so they're given the ability to talk ki- kind of off of faith a little bit. It's not explicitly said you have faith in Aslan and thus you can talk, but there are events that go on throughout the Narniad where animals lose the ability to be able to talk. And it's, there's, there's, it's a rarity when you do find an animal that can talk as you go through the, the events of Narnia, especially as you get closer to the last battle and you so so you have kind of the the lower end of creation so to so to speak and the need for in the middle there a a i guess a governing party and that's where you see the introduction of the sons of adam and daughters of eve which frank the cabbie uh, the cabbie and <laughs> eventually later on in the book his wife helen become the first king and queen of Narnia, and then that goes through into um, the Pevensey children and onto the lineage of the Caspians and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. But you see more of the emphasis here being a, a more direct, uh, I guess, Protestant view of what God at the, God at the top, then mm. Jesus, then creation, then and and then the, the the beasts of the field and birds of the sky and plant life and so on and so forth. I I get like I said I guess maybe if you get into the nuts and bolts of it, he was unafraid to do to anthropomorphize animals probably, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure there's a direct influence one to one. Right. Yeah. I I also I have to throw out there because you mentioned Frank the Cabbyman. His reaction to the creation story, and now he just kind of didn't want to believe it. And then watching that story arc to where he becomes the first king of Narnia, wild. Absolutely wild. As far as story arcs go, bravo. Great stuff. For sure. Um, so I'm I'm going to take a crack at summarizing the Ainu Lindale, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. But the creation of Ardu, it was added to the Silmarillion later on. So it's before chapter one of the Silmarillion, you have the Ainu Lindale. And in it, it, it's wild. So you start with Eru, who is known as Iluvatar. And it, it kind of goes through, which it's funny because a lot of times it's just pronounced Eru Iluvatar. But in this, he just calls him Eluvatar most of the time. Tolkien later on says that's just God. He starts, he creates the Holy Ones, the Anar, which are basically archangels. Sure, I'll go with that. Um, And he starts by giving them each their own song. And at first they can only sing separately, but then they learn how to harmonize with one another a little bit more and continue. And this whole time, Eru is sort of orchestrating the song. Then Melkor, one of the Anar, who later becomes Morgoth, 
Melkor starts kind of trying to do his own thing. He wants to learn his own music and have his own ideas. He notices that all of the songs of the rest of the Einar are going into the abyss. And he's like, well, why isn't it filling up yet? I want to go to the abyss. And he looks for the eternal fire and he goes to the abyss. He doesn't find anything. He keeps coming up with his own song and it keeps kind of seeming like it's messing with the overall song. But twice, Eru stands up, lifts up his left hand or both of his hands, smiles, and it turns out that Melkor's disruption, his disharmony, was actually just part of Eru's orchestrated song. So as much as Melkor tries to disrupt the harmony, it turns out that all of those were part of Eru's song. So that's a whole wild thing in and of itself. Uh, it continues to go through the song. It has three or four different stages of the song. And then it, you discover that the song was a foretelling of creation. So then the actual work of creation starts. That's where some of the Anar are able to come to Earth and become Valar, which I guess are still archangels, maybe just regular angels. They lose some of their power and they're forced to stay on Earth if they come to Earth. Later on, I don't think it's in this one, but you will see that the, the Valar, some of them take up basically sidekicks, demigods, whatever you want to call them. Those are the Mayar. That's when you get Gandalf. That's when you get um, Saruman. Um, all, all of wizards. those guys. Yeah, yes. all of the wizards. They're all Mayar, basically. Um, you also, during the song, he has points where he has a few different high notes, Eru does, and that's the children of Eluvatar. And that would be the humans and the elves. Um, it doesn't say in here, but it mentions both Anu and Olmo. Anu is the one who has the only other real creation of himself other than Melkar. Anu creates the dwarves with Eru's permission. So they do the, all the songs. They come to Earth. They make it their own thing. There's a few special lands that are just for the elves and the humans, not for the Valar. And it just kind of unfolds this whole thing. But you see that the song kind of, if, especially if you know the history of Middle-earth, it makes so much sense. All of the times in the song where Melkor rises up and it looks like darkness is surrounding Eru and he stands up and smiles. And it turns out that was part of his harmony the whole time. When you actually go through the story, you're able to look at the end of the Second Age and you go, oh, that's what that part of the song was. And it, it makes so much sense. So this is one where it's a great origin story, but it makes a lot more sense if you already know the history of Middle-earth. I think, Josh, did I get most of the big notes with that? It's wild. It's hard to... Yeah, I think I think you did. I think a lot of people focus more on, on, on Melkor and his whole thing because of how that impacts the story later. But for the actual origin, I think you did it well. Yeah, yeah. Melkor, what's, I think that's one of the big, most interesting differences in the Narniad and the um, Arda origins in this, Melkor is sort of one of, like, yes, Eru is one of, like, the protagonists, but Melkor tends to have a lot of the focus of the story of the Ainur um, Lindale. Yeah, he has a lot of a lot of main character to him, simply because his actions yeah. are kind of uh, the driving force, in, in, in a way, of basically everything else to come. He's what disrupts the kind of the, perfer the perfection of uh, Eru Ilvatar. Yeah. And if you if you compare it to the biblical story, it, it really mimics a lot of the same stuff. Like, um, if you look at Melkor's drive, he knew he was the most powerful among all of the Anar. He wanted to prove it, right? He was jealous of God. He wanted to become more powerful himself. He wanted to own the void. He wanted to have the fire for himself. All of these things. And you look at the story of Lucifer in the Bible, and it's much the same thing. 
it's much this guy who thinks, well, what are what about these humans? What about this? Well, I'm jealous, so I'm going to overtake. I'm going to become the new god. That is sort of Satan's whole story. So it's interesting that Melkor is basically the same character. And to kind of see it unfold in the way that Tolkien writes it, where Melkor, or, you know, basically we could say Satan, tries to come up with his own song, but it turns out all along that was part of Eru's harmony. And yeah, it kind of gives me the idea of musical dissonance, where sometimes yeah. the lack of tonality is the tonality, like in certain respects. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it just... I don't know. I, I thought the whole thing was fascinating. I just found it really interesting how much focus he put on Melkor during it. Um, and I know a lot of people, if we're going to take it into like real life theology kind of stuff, a lot of people don't like this idea that all of the bad stuff happens in the world as part of God's plan. And in a way, it is it is an awful thing to tell someone, right? If they just experience a death or something and to be like, oh, don't worry, that's part of God's plan. Like, well, shut up. <laughs> you know, like that is not the time for this. But as far as if you're looking at what Tolkien believed about his theology and how it overlays into the story of Middle Earth, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Joe, I had a question for you, if, or, but you can do your response first and then I'll ask you. <laughs> so I, I think in, in something like this, this is where it's important to draw the line of, yeah, you mentioned it before that that Tolkien did go on record to say it wasn't allegory and all of that kind of stuff. There wasn't it. But when you look at the sum total of the creation, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's shortchanging either work to say it is just this. It is just a historical, uh, a piece of historical fiction, or it is just an allegorical story. No, they're authors. So they're going to use different literary devices all along the way. And so you look at, there are absolutely similarities between between the two, but you can see that one is influenced by, okay, so what does it mean for an almighty deity to have a systematized front to be able to create all of these things versus what does the picture look like of this vague statement that's given in a piece of ancient poetry yeah you know so for those of you that don't know genesis is not a is is not a a, a science book no matter how much anybody wants to make it into a science book it's it's not it is it is poetry guys and he takes this this idea of of okay this this line that's given mm -hmm. and then explores and expounds upon that yeah you know but both are very clearly influenced by that liter literary device of drawing comparison or allegory. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting when you compare both of these works to the Bible origin, and we're thinking about it as literature. We're not, you know, sitting here as theologians necessarily for this discussion. It's funny because both Lewis and Tolkien, one of their chief goals is to make their origin story fit within the canon. Right. Like they're they're making sure that it makes sense consistent in of the own story. Whereas the biblical narrative, you look at Genesis one and Genesis two, and those are two different stories. You have Genesis one, the, the order of creation is all of the creatures or plants, then creatures, then man and woman. And then you get to Genesis two and all of a sudden it's written completely differently. And you have man, then animals and plants and then woman. Well, what order was it made in? I mean, clearly that author wasn't concerned with being consistent. So he's trying to do something different than what Lewis and Tolkien were doing. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to ask, though, because this is we, we've kind of tiptoed around it. And, and this is why I wanted to do the episode. Why did Lewis and Tolkien have their God sing? In Genesis, you know, God speaks everything into existence. You know, he said this, then it happened. And it seems very like boop, boop, boop. But in theirs, they invoke song. They invoke melody, harmony. Why? I would say that it adds to the artistry of of the whole thing for Lewis. I think he wants to paint a picture first and foremost. And by doing so, there's this almost mystical quality to the sound reverberation of music, right? Biblically speaking, mm-hmm. we we are designed to respond to music. Scientifically speaking, we can see that the brain responds to music. And I think, at least for Lewis, he's trying to capitalize on the picture that that paints. I get the vibe from Tolkien that it's more about leaning into that that mystical quality that tends to kind of permeate what is it called shield and shield and sword fantasy high fantasy that's the that's <laughs> yeah. the genre that mm-hmm. that lord of the rings and the well the middle earth yeah. content it almost falls into. almost defines high fantasy in some ways yeah, yeah. right yeah i yeah i definitely both of them have to do with artistry um i'll talk more about tolkien just because i'm more familiar with that one but i i think Part of in the Arda, why he or the Arda, part of the origin of the Arda, why he has music foretell creation is so that he can show, especially because most of your Middle Earth stories are very black and white. There is good, there is bad. There isn't a lot of great characters. That's not what happens in Lord of the Rings typically. Um, And I think it shows very clearly how Lewis views what is good and what is bad, not based off of this check system or anything like that but it's more of lewis what tolkien views as good and what's bad it's more of are you in harmony with eru with the god of that world or are you out of harmony and i think that is sort of what permeates a lot of his more i don't want to say theological themes because he wasn't talking about god per se but it's more of his um morality play that is in the books is just how he explains that through melody, and I think it makes a lot of sense that way. And you can hit, you can hit, of course, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. With, of course, the first two instances of, of Melkor kind of going off and doing his own thing, and and Eru kind of standing up and being like, "No, this was this what I wanted." Yeah, I I love the scene where it says, from the perspective of the Anar, it looked as though Eru was surrounded by darkness in battling harmonies that are, you know, disunizing or whatever. And he just stands up and smiles <laughs> because those high notes were part of his melody. And it's like, oh, man. OK. <laughs> All right. All right, Tolkien. That was well described. Beautiful. Um, so so that's one of, that to me. I think the fact that they both use melody is one of the biggest things these two stories have in common. Did you all see any other similarities in these creation stories? I mean, they're best friends. They worked on each other's work. I'm sure they have more influence other than just song. But. That's the most obvious one. Yeah. Um, so, so I think both, I think both of them have a certain measure of reverence for the magnitude of what they're doing. And I don't just mean, I mean, I do mean that literally or literarily rather, but I also mean that in the sense that 
again, you can go back to, and I don't just mean from a detailed perspective, but I just mean from a concept perspective, that these are two men who are influenced. And that influence is showing, not just in the style in which they create their world, but the, the, the gravity that they give it. Because they've, they've mm-hmm. been exposed to a significant creation story that they obviously have a, a belief in the creation of existence through the hand of a divine nature that that the, the fact that they get that mm-hmm. is is a, an influencing factor in how exactly they go about displaying all of this and i would argue that the fact that they are uh, that they have that understanding of the magnitude of all of it is what makes both of these men stand out as creationists of their own respective worlds. Yeah. And to bring out some of the lawyer side of me, I think part of why they're able to see the beauty of creation and talk about it as song and something beautiful a little bit more is because this is well before the Snopes trial in America, right? There wasn't this huge controversy around evolution in the church. They, there was controversy. There were people who disagreed about it. But even in your fundamentalist papers of like, what is fundamentalism at their time? There was evolutionist on that board. Like it just wasn't a doctrine that mattered at all. So to them, they're just looking at creation as a beautiful story. And they're able to portray it as that a lot better than I think if someone tried to do something similar modern would be able to. Um, I think two two of the things that I noticed that they have, have in common also, um, one one that I thought it was interesting is they both show their the god of their world, you know, Aslan or Eru, gives voice to someone else, right? Aslan give breathes out and gives voice to the animals. Um, in the story of the creation of Arda, they have um, Eru gives the Anar the ability to harmonize, the ability to create melody. So he's giving them voice, giving them their own song. So I thought it was interesting that both of them are enabling the creation with the with the act of creation. They're also enabling it. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see him depict kind of the passing of agency itself, I think, is also another part of it. Yeah. The the concept that, you you know, you can think for yourself and have, you know, free will uh, or in, indeed the ability to create something of your own will as well. And then they learn like almost inherently how to harmonize their will to create with, with Eru's own will to create. And then they work together even amongst themselves to create the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like co-creators with God in that world is interesting. Joe. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to be the first one to get spicy on this one. I'm taking it from, from Josh with the bad opinions. (laughs) I'll get controversial. It's not really that controversial, but somebody somewhere is going to find this controversial. Um, That's probably one of the most, Josh, you hit on one of the, one of the more intriguing notes for me for Tolkien as a creationist. Um, For those of you that have never heard me preach, I believe highly like, very, very highly in free will. I. It's the only way that any of this makes sense. Predetermination doesn't make any sense. Uh, out, outside of mm-hmm. like, there are, uh, the Bible has, has some choice things to say about, you know, 
the, uh, the destinations for the successfully unrepentant and for followers of Christ. Outside of that, I think there's a lot to be said about a lot of things that aren't actually addressed the way that they are taught in the Bible. Okay, now that that's being now that that's said, it fascinates me that Tolkien kind of had some of that spirit of free will in in what he created because he created the he he created a system where people had agency and yes uh lewis did somewhat the same thing but not in the exact same way uh there was more of a there's more of an emphasis on the sovereignty of the deity structure mm-hmm. and less on these are fully functioning characters that have the ability to choose or deny him and choose or deny what is right and all of that kind of stuff. And yes, you do get into some of that when you get into some of the character interactions, especially later on with characters like Lucy and characters <laughs> like Eustace and, and all of that. You get some of that, but there's not this very clear, like you you are choosing the moral option or you are choosing mm-hmm. the the um the holy option, if you will. Whereas yeah. with Tolkien, from Jump Street, he opens the door up to these mm-hmm. are characters that have agency to do right or wrong, to choose the right option or to choose the incorrect option, those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. usually, always, especially with and, and and before before you before anybody gets their gets their pitchforks out and tries to cancel me, <laughs> I don't mean this universally, but generally with those that are of Catholic influence, you don't usually see that kind of very open dialogue about free will and choice and the effects of that and all of that kind of stuff. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that that is displayed because I am influenced to believe that, no, we we all have free will. Otherwise, oh, there's a lot that God has to question, uh, has to come into question about if God is even real, if we don't have free will. I said it. Okay. Yeah. And that really brings us to some of the big differences they have too, because it it makes me think of the levels of degree of agency in the hierarchy or the world of um, Ardar. Um, (laughs) Sorry, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, In Arda, you see that first he creates the Anar, but if they choose to come to Earth, they become Valar and they're less powerful, but they're still the most powerful things on Earth, right? And then some of the Valar were able to create dwarves. Um, you see that Melkor, when he becomes Valar, he becomes, uh, he's named Morgoth. And Morgoth is able to create Mayar, but also he's able to create, you know, uh, turn elves to goblins, uh, also create his own goblins. The origins of goblins and um, orcs. orcs and all of them is very weird because you get multiple origin stories a couple times. I'll leave that alone for now. That could be its own episode because Sauron in Rings of Power caused some issues with people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of things Rings of Power did. Well, like like I said the last time we talked about this, I liked it better than I thought. It still did a lot of weird things and is very retconny. Um, but but I wanted to go back. So with uh, 
with Melkor's interactions, you know, during the the songs before creation. Yeah. Uh, you know, he goes off script, so to speak, only to find out it wasn't um, when Eru kind of lifts his hands. What do we know about um, his actions during, like, the being Morgoth as regards Ooh. that? Has has it ever been acknowledged by, you know, Eru Ilvatar in any way, whether or not that was, like, something he was intending for or not? Yeah, um, so so past the Anulindale, God, what a word. Um, when you get into the rest of the Silmarillion, you see some of Morgoth's story. It's very strange. So so I think that Tolkien was trying to use this to imply that his actions were planned for by Eru, more or less, that Eru knew what was going to happen and just what the enemy meant for evil was turned to good by God, you know, makes perfect sense. But really, he doesn't explicitly say it in the rest of the story. You see where um, Morgoth and the Valar have their own battles that they didn't really like to talk about, and it was before the elves were around. So the elves heard of this story as well as all the other battles of the Valar kind of afterwards. Um, they were able to capture Morgoth, imprison him, all that kind of stuff. But his Maiar, Sauron, is able to do a little bit more magic. Morgoth is basically so arrogant that he doesn't have these tricks, these magic tools, these like, you know, rings of power or anything like that. He doesn't do any of that. He just destroys everybody. He's the most powerful Valar. He ruled the earth for the first age and a half or so, basically. And which in Middle Earth, you know, in Narnia, there's seven ages. Middle Earth, there's four. Currently, we're in the fourth age. For a large part <laughs> of the second age, it's still under Morgoth's reign. You see that they're able to capture him, but then Sauron returns. And that's where you get into the third age, and that's where the Lord of the Rings story and all that happens. Sauron and the Rings of Men and all that. But I don't think it explicitly says this is or is not part of Eru's plan. Joe. Uh, so, sorry, once you guys are done, I don't want to, because if I jump in now, I will derail it. I, I, I was just going to hit on the fact that uh, it's, I, I just think it's an interesting contrast between um, kind of the prehistory where we kind of seem, it seems to be in a light of uh, kind of, I'm going to go with the, the phrase compatibilism as regarding mm -hmm. the will of the of the uh, various Maiar, where uh, Melkor's actions are free, but also planned for at the same time. But with, with what we, with what information we get in the actual first through fourth ages, it, it seems more back to libertarian free will, as as Joe was discussing earlier. If I caught him right, um, oh, yeah. uh, just the, the it's completely completely free and it's going for it. Yeah, it, it's interesting in in the in Lindelil, they Tolkien does a really it's four pages, and yet he managed to to paint this picture where Eru knew everything that was going to happen and planned for it, but also gave free agency to the AR. And also, you know, like, like he does this really good job of free will versus predestination. He does a good job of kind of explaining how these beings are more powerful and yet they can't do anything without God's permission. Right. And, and he unpacks a lot of, even though it's not theology in our terms, it's still a lot of theology for their terms. If Eru is their god, that is their theology. And it unpacks a lot in four pages. It's wild. Yeah, and it's actually one of the better things about uh, about fiction and looking at pantheons and just other creation structures and deity structures 
is you can unpack a lot of theological themes without having to tread on eggshells so much. Um, Because people, if you talk about things in real world terms, can get very defensive about their particular views. Whereas one of the best things about fiction is our ability to talk about things without talking about them, but actually still talk about them. (laughs) Like you can completely have from, you completely hit up one topic where, you know, whatever it is and ignore any repercussions like, oh, but you're not thinking about this as in the real world. Yeah. Well, and that gets back to Lewis, where Lewis had the thing that I I like to mention a lot, his doctrine of imagination, where he says the power of story is that it can get past all the safeguards we have up and let us explore ideas that we wouldn't be able to explore otherwise. Yeah, I mean, to that very note, it's it's fascinating to me, and I'm going to use real world terms to to (laughs) say what I'm going to say. So it it goes for (laughs) the the more human reaction to like these phrases but like you you look at how these two respective stories handle sovereignty of the of the deity structure how they handle creation and then what they do about the problem of evil right Mm. because and and i guess moral agency is a good way of putting it because on one hand you have token who kind of bakes a lot of this stuff in from Jump Street. Then you have (laughs) Lewis, who more highlights the power and complete control of the deity, and then what creation does with that, and putting Mm -hmm. the the moral agency at that point in the story. But neither one of them uses phrasing like, the problem of evil or moral agency or any of that kind of stuff. So that way it's not, it doesn't trigger the emotional response. It triggers the thought process to be able to comprehend, okay, so what do I do about this concept? And eventually for the, for the right kind of person who's going to think deeper. And that's what we've been from, Mm. from the inception of SG, we have been, telling you guys think deeper about these things allow these concepts to wash over you because if you're able to then you kind of get to divorce yourself from that emotional response and just think about the concept or just think about allow as will likes to say allow the mirror to reflect back at you sort of thing and you're able to unpack those things and then once you've unpacked the concept then hopefully you can say okay so what does this mean for me what does this mean for real life without Mm. triggering that emotional response that can come with a lot of these things i'm not saying don't have emotions guys but it's okay and and is is preferential (laughs) to think about these things logically and then allow the emotions to come in after the fact. And and it's fascinating to me how in very vastly different ways, both men are willing to create imperfect creations, right? Mm-hmm. You have your handful of characters that <laughs> are the morally righteous or the powerful ones or the good guys or what have you. But outside of that, what we see a, a lot throughout any point of 
not just the creation stories, but but the worlds that these men created are a willingness to have imperfect men and women, it, to have imperfect creatures, and and allowing that to almost reflect back on what they created from the creation story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's it's why I think it's really helpful that you know, even though you know I'm not Catholic, so I don't believe in archangels. I don't believe in demigods, any of that kind of stuff, but I think it's helpful in the story that Tolkien has the Anar, who are these higher beings than all of us, right? And they're the ones watching this melody unfold, and they see Eru surrounded by, by darkness, and they're thinking, oh, this is it. They're concerned, and Eru smiles. Because it, it kind of gets past this whole, well, we just don't understand, you know, God's ways are higher than ours. It's no, God, God's ways are so high that sometimes it literally looks like defeat, but instead is part of the melody. And there's just a beautiful way to, to say that in story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wanted to get to some of our favorite parts or quotes from each of these origins in Narnia and Middle Earth. I actually wrote down a quote from both that I really wanted to mention, and that's why I'm coming up with an excuse to do this. <laughs> Go for it. In, yeah. So in, in, the, in the, the Magician's Nephew, Aslan says, because once he gives the, the free will to animals to speak. And this gets to a lot of like the heart of who C.S. Lewis is and, I, and why I love it so much. Um, one of them says something and they, and you know, they're all laughing or whatever. And it's like, yeah, um, Aslan says for jokes as well as justice come in with speech. And, you know, I, someone who wants to be in law one day, I love the, the justice line as someone who enjoys comedy. I like, yeah, jokes as well as justice come in with speech. That's great. Um, shortly thereafter, the creature who said that, that kind of triggered him to say that, goes, oh, so did I say the first joke? And Aslan just straight up goes, no, you were the first joke. <laughs> and cracked me up. I was like, what on earth? <laughs> like, Lewis is just getting savage with his own characters for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in Arda, my, my favorite quote from the Aina um, Lindale, uh, Eru says, no theme may be placed that hath not its uttermost source in me. And it, shortly after, Tolkien uses the phrase war of sounds is what the second age is or the third age is. And then after you see him use that, what Melkor does as part of his harmony, Eru explains to the rest of the Anar, no, no, everything that's played, every harmony that's made, ultimately has its source from me. And that was just a powerful line. It was just really cool. Joe, did you have any quotes or um, lines, anything that stands out to you in these stories that you want to mention? I do. I do. In, uh, in The Magician's Nephew, it said, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. Mm. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Yeah, That, was that really resonated with me because I have, in, in my own personal experience, and I get to do this as a, a as a Narnia fan a little bit quicker than than uh, Tolkien fans do, because Lewis was pretty on the nose with with some of his stuff. But I, I look at this from my own perspective, and and I think about where I'm at now as as a shepherd, as a as a um, as somebody who cares for the hearts of man. And, and, and I look at what that used to look like in reconciling this whole God thing. I wanted to fit in, but I didn't, 
the the idea of what of what religion was to me was so off-putting and so distasteful that I could not bring myself to believe in an all-knowing creator god and 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 there was a lot that go, that went into that but looking at where i'm at now and tr- trust me i i'm i'm far from i'm far uh, i'm i'm far from a saintly person i guess is a good way of putting it now there's a lot of language some people might say this and that and the other thing and i know i use the term saint sometimes and all of that kind of stuff but i'm i i have a i have a long road as as we all do but mm-hmm. i i i get that i'm rougher on the edges but but to look at the realities the, to look at the realities of what all of this means to me now what creation means what jesus means what salvation means what all of those things mean paul said woe to me if i do not preach the gospel mm-hmm. when i look at something like this. And I look at the juxtaposition. So for those of you that don't know, Jadis is listening to the song of Aslan and it's distasteful to her, like so repulsive to her, to her. Whereas, um, also just to say it while you're thinking Jadis is the white witch for those of you who probably don't remember that. (laughs) And and to, to, whereas to some of the other characters, it is this sweet, song and all of that so that's what we're that's that's what's happening in story but when you look at this when you look at creation when you look at the whole god piece when you look at all of this stuff some people look at all of this and they see the most disgusting thing to ever happen to mankind some people look at it and they see a set of rules that governs their lives to other people they see the greatest relationship that's ever happened that can ever happen and when you allow that to wash over you as a person, it's it's awe-inspiring how these truths can affect other people, different people in different ways, and and how they're so they have such magnitude that regardless of whatever situation you look at, it tends to elicit a pretty significant response because of the sheer magnitude of the truth itself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I. Part of what you're talking about that I thought was really interesting. Frank, the cab driver, mm-hmm. was there. And originally he heard the song, but he, he was like, oh, lions can't sing. This can't happen. None of this can possibly be true. So he, it said, I forget what the line is, but he basically convinced himself he didn't hear it until he actually didn't hear it. And all he heard was roars and animals making noises when they were supposedly talking and all this stuff. And it really hits on this, how bad theology and how stuff you've been brainwashed to believe by different churches or whatever can seek so down into you that you don't actually see the beauty of the story of the Bible. And it can't wash over you because you've convinced yourself that it isn't what it is. Yep. Josh, did, <laughs> I know that's, that's a hell of a thing to follow, but <laughs> did you have anything that stood out to you? Like uh, quotes, lines, parts of these stories that you wanted to bring attention to? I just wanted to talk a little bit of etymology, uh, specifically uh, you know, fictional etymology as, as you know, for whatever that really means, as far as words are weird anyway, uh, but of Eru and <laughs> Iluvatar. So yeah. Iluvatar is, so, I mean, they're both titles as much as they're words, as much as they're names. Um, yeah. But Iluvatar is a compound word um, with of the words father and universe or all, and it comes to mean the father of all. 
Mm-hmm. Eru is a, is a name in Quena, Elvish, that just simply means he that is alone. So, like, mm-hmm. when they say that name, it's he he that is alone, the father of all. And, like, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the name they're invoking when, when you hear anybody actually say that name. Which, I mean, they, they make a whole point about how it's uh, a name they do not utter even in jest or without full intent. They very much don't take the name lightly. Yeah, yeah. It's very much don't take Eru's name in vain. Um, and uh, and uh, it's fascinating, too, because that, that hits on a, a lot of your, if you're, if you're talking to Jewish or um, Muslim believers, one of their big problems with Christianity is that we have three gods. Because they don't under, if they haven't had a conversation about the Trinity with someone, to them, we're saying that there's a father, there's a son, and a Holy Spirit. And they're, well, that's three. That's not one. So I find it really interesting that Tolkien uses this language, calling back to Deuteronomy 6, where it says God is one, because it is something that Christians believe also. We just right. have this mystery of the Trinity. Well, some of us call it mystery. Some of us call it doctrine, whatever. Um, borrowing from more of the, my Orthodox friends, I, I like using some of the language of mystery because I like to sit in this area where a lot of this parts of spirituality of god aren't things that are knowable there are things that are able to be experienced maybe but they're not a doctrine it is a mystery i like that better personally yeah i think um i think i don't think there's anything wrong with using that word mystery as a matter of fact i i, I really like that word as uh, as a descriptor of the trinity because i think one of the biggest things that gets people into trouble is trying to be vocal about things that the Bible is quiet about. <laughs> and, yeah. and the Bible is largely quiet about other than the fact that this is the Trinity. These are, these are aspects of th- this is, this is part of what this does. And this is what this like that, that part of it is explained, but how the actual Trinity works isn't. So let's <laughs> just sit in that mystery and wonder that, that God is so dynamic that simultaneously you've got God the Father, you've got Jesus who still is, who all, you know always was, is, so on and so forth, and then you were indwelt by Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's okay to sit in that in the wonder of that without trying to put lyrics to every single aspect of all of that, especially with something like this, because it's any lyrics that we make, we're making up. Yeah. Well, and that's goes back again to why I like the creation of Arda so much. There aren't words. It's a melody. And that's some of the beauty of this is just kind of getting to sit in the melody, the mystery, the melody, whatever you want to talk mm-hmm. and call it. It's, I don't know, it, it is powerful to sit in. It is one of those things of like, yeah, I'm, I can be okay with the Trinity, but I can also be okay not knowing. We don't have to put lyrics to it. We don't have to define things. Some things are beyond our ability to define. And that's where stories like these two, where you see creation and song, you see the art of it imagined in a different world, are able to really explore the depths better than any doctrine, than any definition I think we could offer. <laughs> uh, I wanted to throw in, you guys know string theory, right? Like just on yes. the vaguest levels, yeah. you understand this, the, the idea of string theory. One of the guys who worked on it goes to Pastor Will's church, one of our other hosts. So that's pretty crazy. Oh, that is pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Um, like just the 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 basis basis idea of it is that everything is one dimensional objects which are referred to as strings despite being one dimensional don't worry about that 
Um, <laughs> but it's their vibrational state that defines what they are in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I just can't help but, you know, when I when I hear that that's, you know, like kind of like everyone's best theory about how how reality exists as it does like hmm, kind of sounds like everything is a little bit just words that got spoken into existence or a melody that got played or also a melody that got played this is a, a another call by melkor all of this other stuff when we're talking about creation i don't think it's for not that lucifer the most powerful of the angels was also god's musician <laughs> there is power in melody yeah yeah, yeah. That so for all of you uh, DC fans, think Flash, right? Where you, where you hear <laughs> about Flash vibrating at different frequencies to get from from world to world. Um, yeah, that's that's one of those things. As a musician, as a as a um, theoretical physics nerd, um, that has really intrigued me about existence because when you look from a scientific perspective their vibrational patterns are absolutely a thing. And when you look at something as significant as music, as melody, as speech, all it is is mm-hmm. vocal patterns, right? Their vocal mm-hmm. patterns strung together to make word, to make syllables, to make words, so on and so forth. But I, I and I think along the way, I've, I, I'll go back to, we're talking about Lewis, so it only fits that I go back to the the phrase, reflections of truth. I think that's part of what is so intriguing about the way that Tolkien and Lewis both write their creation stories is because they, they're they hitting upon this idea of vibrational patterns, of mm-hmm. the power of song, and these things that almost uh, carnally affect us, that that kind of really resonate with, with the human as as a whole in their mind and so yeah i think that's it that's a really fascinating point to to bring up um especially if you were to expand the lens into thinking about these things as like multiversal theories not to our (laughs) universe but to each other yeah man yeah i don't have anything to add to that (laughs) that is a a a great last point that you brought up josh because that is it it is powerful when you realize yeah the science actually also backs this idea of vibrations of sound of speak into the universe um and and that's what's i know know i keep having more things but that's what I, i love about both stories aslan didn't just happen to say things and it you know whatever creation happened happened it even says in the story you began to see what he was singing and the intentionality of it. And when you look at the story of the creation of Arda, you see there was intentionality in the melody, even to the extent of when you try to disrupt it. No, that was also intentional. So I I like this idea of beauty of art and also intentionality in creation. With that, are you guys ready to wrap this up? I think so. All right, cool. Guys, welcome to the wrap up. First things first, before recommendations, Joe mentioned Reflections of Truth. If you would like to buy a t-shirt that has the Reflections of Truth line on it, we actually have one in our stores. If you go to systematicgeekology.org, we have a Reflections of Truth shirt there. I think it looks really cool. has um, the Superman version of our logo and a reflection of it. And on the back, it says we keep seeing these Reflections of Truth. So support the podcast. Get your Reflections of Truth shirt. 
and then check out these recommendations we're about to throw down. Um, my first one is just going to be what I mentioned earlier. Uh, the Villainous Games, check them out. Uh, if you haven't played the Star Wars one yet, I haven't either, but I've read all the cards. Seems awesome. Come over. I'll play it with you. <laughs> yeah. Josh, you got any recommendations for everybody? Yeah, so mine's also going to be a game, but I'm going to do a digital game, a video game. Uh, it is Enderall Forgotten Stories. So this game is a very strange game. It's available on Steam, and it's probably available somewhere else online, but I know it's available on Steam. And I say I say this because it's not a, f- a full game in its own right, in some sense. What it actually is, is it's available on, on Steam as its own game. However, it uses Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, it's the entire game of Skyrim itself, as the engine for the game. It just takes all of the hmm. kind of back-end work that, devel- that was done to make Skyrim exist and uses that to make its own entirely, diff- entirely new game. So it has... Most of the, most of the uh, mechanics and feel of it is that of Skyrim, but it has its own storyline, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, gives me slight Wheel of Time vibes, and in a very good way. And it's uh, it's also for whatever wherever it's worth, it's definitely more of a challenge than Skyrim is because they uh, they changed the health system and the level up system and a, and a lot of things to make it a bit more challenging. And it's it's good. Joe, did you have any recommendations for everybody? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I, I want to. I think it's funny that I'm the one that's that's suggesting suggesting this. But for anybody who's looking for the type of game that can be incredibly relaxing and uh, oddly oddly interesting, I, I'll be the first one to admit it's it's weird that I'm even interested in this game. If it is, there what is I think a game, it is. yeah called wingspan okay yeah um, that's right yep uh wingspan is a game it's like a it's like a card game where um it you you play birds and you get points based off of objectives and the bir- the birds have point values and all of that kind of stuff but there's a digital version and there's a board game version i strongly suggest getting the digital version because there's a soundtrack and uh, there's a narrator really that gives ambience. Yeah, the there's a narrator that gives uh, bird facts along the way. So a little bit change of pace, especially for somebody like me. But if you're looking for something that you can enjoy, that you can relax to all of that, that's different than what you're used to out of a game, pick it up. Um, It can be played single player or co-op, and it's very easily designed to um, click away from the game um and come back to it at a different time yeah there's there's an asynchronous multiplayer in which you have like 72 hours to take your turn and so it's very it's very low uh low priority very easy to just have that as a game ongoing between you and a couple friends that you guys can just every once in a while come take your turn and pass you know it's very good nice nice i might have checked that one out i I love those kind of games but anyway um guys if you want to hear more from myself, from Josh, from Joe, go to systematicgeekology.org, hit the host tab. All of our names are there. You can click on it and it will have a playlist of every episode that we are on. So that's always cool. And of course, we want to know what you're geeking out on, what you think we should be geeking out on. So if you have any recommendations, same website, go down, 
let us know at the bottom of the page. You can also join our Discord there. Maybe check that out. And of course, we want you all to remember that we're all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazal Ministries podcast network.